Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 28 Canadian Sketches. Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 28 Canadian Sketches. Part 2. The settlement of a thickly wooded country, when it is left to chance, is a most uncertain and capricious matter. The narrow views and interests of a clique in the colony, or even of an influential individual, often direct emigration out of its natural course, involving unnecessary suffering to the settler, a waste or absolute loss of capital, and a retarding of the progress of the country. The circumstances and situation of the United States were less productive of these evils than those of Upper Canada, because settlement went on more uniformly from the sea-coast towards the interior. The mighty rivers and lakes of Canada, though productive of boundless prosperity, operated in the first period of its settlement most unfavorably on the growth of the colony, by throwing open for settlement an extensive inland coast, at that time unconnected with the ocean by means of canals. Hence, Numerous detached, feeble, and unprogressive settlements came into existence, where the new settlers had to struggle for years with the most disheartening difficulties. European settlers know but little of the value of situation. In most cases, they are only desirous of acquiring a large extent of land at a low price, and thus, unless restrained by the wise regulations of a provident government, they too often ruin themselves and waste their capital in a wilderness where it does good to no one. When emigration from the United Kingdom began to set in to Upper Canada, the pernicious speculation in wild lands commenced in earnest. As most of the land speculators possessed shares in the steamboats on Lake Ontario, the interests of both speculations were combined. It was, of course, the interest of the steamboat proprietors to direct emigration as far to the westward as possible, and influenced by their interested representations, and those of the land speculators, settled in Toronto, Coburg, and Hamilton, the greater portion of the emigrants possessing capital were thrown into these towns, near which they were led to expect desirable locations. In the same manner, the agents of the Canada Land Company, who were to be found on every steamer, were actively employed in directing the emigrants to the Huron tract. By a simple inspection of the map of Upper Canada, it will be seen that, as the Bay of Quinte was out of the general route of the steamers, and too near the lower end of the lake navigation, it did not suit the views of the parties most interested to direct emigration to its shores. Thus the beautiful Bay of Quinte, with the most fertile land on its shores, and scenery which exceeds in variety and picturesque beauty that of any part of Upper Canada, Hamilton and Niagara alone excepted, has been passed by for years for situations much less desirable or attractive to European settlers. The forbidding aspect of the country near Kingston, which is situated at the entrance of the bay from the St. Lawrence, where the soil has a rocky and barren appearance, has no doubt deterred emigrants from proceeding in this direction. The shores of the Bay of Quinte were originally occupied principally by U.E. Loyalists and retired officers, who had served during the late war with the United States, but the emigration from Europe 
has chiefly consisted of the poorer class of Irish Catholics and of Protestants from the north of Ireland, settled in two very thriving townships in the county of Hastings. There is also a sprinkling of Scotch and English in different parts of the county. Comparatively few possessing any considerable amount of capital have found their way here, as the county town Belleville is not in the line of the summer travel on the lakes. The scenery along the shores of the bay is exceedingly beautiful all the way from Kingston to the head, where a large river, the Trent, discharges itself into it at a thriving village of about a thousand inhabitants called Trent Port. A summer ride along the lower portion of this river presents scenery of a bolder and grander character than is often met with in Upper Canada, and it is enlivened by spectacles of immense rafts of timber descending the rapids, and by the merry chorus of the light-hearted lumbermen as they pursue their toilsome and perilous voyage to Quebec. Belleville was originally a spot reserved for the Mississauga Indians, and was laid out in 1816 for a village, when there were only two or three white men settled among them as traders in the place. It was only during the last year that the two frame farmhouses, situated about a quarter of a mile apart, were removed to make room for more substantial buildings. Belleville remained nearly stationary for several years, during which a few persons realized handsome fortunes by means of large profits, notwithstanding the limited extent of their business. It at length began to grow in importance as the fine country in its neighborhood was cleared and rendered productive. In 1839, when the county of Hastings was set apart from the Midland District, under the name of the District of Victoria, and Belleville became the district town, the population of the county, including Belleville, was about 12,000, and that of Belleville about 1,500. In 1850, the population of the county had reached 23,454, of which that of Belleville was 3,326. By the census just taken, on a much more correct principle than formerly, the population of Belleville in 1852 appears to be 4,554, showing an increase of 1,228 in two years. During the same period from 1850 to 1852, the population of Coburg on Lake Ontario, which town formerly enjoyed the full benefit of a large emigration, has risen from 3,379 to 3,867, showing an increase of only 488. The town of Dundas in the same time has increased its population from 2,311 in 1850 to 3,519 in 1852 showing an increase of 1,208. The population of the city of Hamilton in 1850 was 10,312, and now in 1852 it is said to exceed 13,000. In 1838, the then town of Hamilton contained a population of only 3,116. When I first visited that place in 1832, it was a dull, insignificant village which might, I suppose, contain a population of 1,200 or 1,500. I can hardly describe my surprise on revisiting it in 1849 to behold a city grown up suddenly, as if by enchantment, with several handsome churches and public and private buildings of cut stone brought from the fine freestone quarries in the precipitous mountains or tableland behind the city. Little need be said of the capital of the province, 
the city of Toronto, the progress of which has been less remarkable in the same period, for the obvious reason that its merits were sooner appreciated or known by the emigrants from Europe. The population of Toronto, then called Little York in 1826, was 1,677, while that of the now city of Kingston was 2,329. In 1838, the population of Toronto was 12,571, and that of Kingston, 3,877. In 1850, the population of Toronto was 25,166, and that of Kingston, 10,097. These few facts will enable the reader to form some idea of the comparative progress of different towns in Upper Canada, under circumstances similar in some cases and different in others. When it is considered that all of these last-mentioned towns have for many years reaped the full benefit of the influx of emigration and capital from the mother country, while the shores of the Bay of Quinte were little known or appreciated, it will appear that the progress of Belleville has been at least equal to that of any of them. The prosperity of Belleville may in fact be almost entirely attributed to the gradual development of its own internal resources, the fertility of the lands in its vicinity, and a large exportation of late years of lumber of all kinds to the United States. Having no desire unnecessarily to trouble the reader with dry statistical tables, I shall merely quote the following facts and figures, kindly furnished me by G. Benjamin Esquire, the present warden of the county of Hastings, to whose business talents and public spirit the county is largely indebted for its progress in internal improvement. The increase of business at the port of Belleville has been most extraordinary. In 1839 the total amount of duties paid at this port amounted to 280 pounds, and in the year 1850 the amount reached 3,659 pounds, 12 shillings, 4 pence. The total arrivals at this port from the United States are as follows. British propellers, eight vessels, 2,400 tons, 104 hands employed. British sailing vessels, 81 vessels, 4,140 tons, 375 hands employed. Foreign D.O. D.O., 124 vessels, 12,643 tons, 730 hands employed. Total, 213 vessels, 19,183 tons, 1,209 hands employed. This in addition to our daily steamers. Our exports to the United States are 52,532 pounds, 17 shillings, 5 pence, and British ports below Belleville, 153,411 pounds, 16 shillings, 6 pence. Total, 205,944 pounds, 13 shillings, 11 pence. Total imports from United States, 25,067 pounds, 2 shilling, 6 pence. Total acceptances from United States, 17,435 pounds. Total importations from lower ports, including drafts and other resources, 130,294 pounds, for a total of 172,796 pounds, 2 shillings, 6 pence. 
showing the balance of trade in favour of this port to be £33,148, 11 shillings, 5 pence. Our exports to the lower ports are made up as follows. 3,485 barrels of potash, totaling 27,880 pounds. 33,198 barrels of flour, totaling 33,198 pounds. 357 bushels of grass seed, totaling 133 pounds, 17 shillings and sixpence. 1,450 bushels of barley, totaling 181 pounds, 5 shillings. 4,947 bushels of peas, totaling 594 pounds, 14 shillings. 4,349 bushels of rye, totaling 434 pounds, 18 shillings. 37,360 bushels of wheat, totaling 7,472 pounds. 198 barrels of pork, totaling 396 pounds. 54 barrels of beef, totaling 74 pounds, 5 shillings. 1,141 sheepskins, totaling 114 pounds, 2 shillings. 4,395,590 feet square timber, totaling 74,903 pounds, 2 shillings and sixpence. 173 kegs of butter, totaling 540 pounds, 12 shillings and sixpence. Furs, totaling 716 pounds. Fatted cattle, totaling 1,840 pounds. High wines, totaling 3,098 pounds. Whiskey, totaling 1,830 pounds, for a total of 153,411 pounds, 16 shillings, sixpence. Our exports to the United States are made up as follows. 30,686 bushels of wheat, for a total of 6,137 pounds, 4 shillings, 11 pence. 3,514 bushels of rye, totaling 351 pounds, 8 shillings. 3,728 bushels of peas, totaling 466 pounds. 90 bushels of barley, totaling 9 pounds. 316 bushels of grass seed, totaling 118 pounds, 10 shillings. 18,756 barrels of flour, totaling 18,756 pounds. 338 barrels of potash, totaling 2,366 pounds. 1,000 bushels of potatoes, totaling 62 pounds, 10 shillings. 92 M shingles, totaling 23 pounds. 117 M lathes, totaling 43 pounds, 15 shillings. 18,210 pounds of rags, totaling 190 pounds. 9,912 pounds of wool, totaling 481 pounds, 19 shillings and sixpence. 466 sheepskins, totaling 57 pounds, 10 shillings. 61 kegs of butter, totaling 122 pounds. 19,648,000 feet sawed lumber, for a total of 21,296 pounds. 513 cows, totaling 2,052 pounds, for a total of 52,532 pounds, 17 shillings and 5 pence. 
The river Moira, passing through Belleville, where it discharges itself into the Bay of Quinte, is one principal source of its prosperity. The preceding statement will show the quantity of sawed lumber exported, most of which is furnished by the sawmills of Belleville, or its immediate vicinity. Besides saw and flour mills, there are cloth and paper manufactories, a manufactory of edge tools, pail manufactories where great quantities of these useful articles are made at a low price by machinery, planing machines, several iron foundries, breweries, distilleries, etc., in almost all of which establishments steam engines or water power from the river are used. A remarkable feature in Belleville, in common with other towns in Canada, is the great number of tailoring and shoemaking establishments when compared with towns of an equal population in Great Britain. This shows, more than anything I am aware of, the general prosperity of the people, who can afford to be large consumers of such articles. There is very little difference to be observed in the costliness of the clothing of the different classes of society in upper Canadian towns and cities, and much less difference in the taste with which these articles are selected than might be expected. With the exception of the lower class of labourers, all persons are well and suitably clad, and they can afford to be so. Twelve years ago there were not more than five or six pianofortes in Belleville. Now there are nearly one hundred of a superior description, costing from eighty to a hundred and fifty pounds. Another remarkable circumstance in Upper Canada is the number of lawyers in all the towns. In Belleville there are about a dozen, which seems to be a large number for a town containing only 4,554 inhabitants, when in an English town of the same size there is often not more than one. Of course, I do not mention this as any particular advantage, but to show the great difference in the amount of transactions and of subjects of contention in an old and a new country. The same may be said of the number of newspapers, as indicative of commercial activity. Two newspapers, representing the two political parties, are well supported in Belleville, both by their subscribers and the number of advertisements. The mouth of the Moira River, which widens out at its junction with the Bay of Quinte, is completely covered with saw logs and square timber of various kinds during the summer months. This river, at Belleville, is often dammed up by confused piles of timber. No sooner are these removed than its waters are covered over by vast quantities of oak staves, which are floated down separately to be rafted off like the squared lumber for the Quebec market. The greater proportion of the saw logs are, however, cut up for exportation to the United States by the various sawmills on the river, or by a large steam sawmill with twenty or thirty run of saws erected on a little island in the mouth of the river. Several large schooners are constantly loading with sawed lumber, and there are two or three steamboats always running between Belleville and Kingston, carrying passengers to and fro, and generally heavily laden with goods or produce. The Bay of Quinte offers more than common facilities in the summer months for rapid and safe communication with other places and, in the winter-time, being but slightly affected by the current of the River Trent, it affords excellent slaying. Large quantities of wheat and other farm produce are transported over the ice to Belleville from the neighbouring county of Prince Edward, which is an exceedingly prosperous agricultural settlement, yielding wheat of the finest quality, 
and particularly excellent cheese and butter. The scenery on the shores of Prince Edward is exceedingly picturesque, and there are numerous wharves at short distances from whence the farmers roll their barrels of flour and other articles on board the steamers on their way to market. I have seen no scenery in Upper Canada presenting the same variety and beauty as that of the shores of Prince Edward in particular. The peninsular situation of this county is its only disadvantage. Being out of the line of the land travel and of the telegraphic communication which passes through Belleville, the county of Prince Edward having nearly exhausted its exportation lumber, the people are thus freed from the evils of a trade that is always more or less demoralizing in its tendency, and can now give their undivided attention to the cultivation of their farms. Certain it is that more quiet, industrious, and prosperous settlers are not to be found in the province. A few miles below Belleville, on the south side of the bay, is a very remarkable natural curiosity called the Stone Mills. On the summit of a tableland, rising abruptly several hundred feet above the shore of the bay, there is a lake of considerable size and very great depth, and which apparently receives a very inadequate supply from the elevated land on which it is situated. The lake has no natural outlet, and the common opinion is that it is unfathomable, and that it is supplied with water by means of a subterranean communication with Lake Huron, or some other lake at the same level. This is, of course, extremely improbable, but there can be no doubt of its great depth, and that it cannot be supplied from the Bay of Quinte, so far beneath its level. As a small rivulet runs into this lake from the flat ground in its vicinity, and as the soil of this remarkable excavation, however it may have been originally formed, is tenacious, I think we require no such improbable theory to account for its existence. Availing himself of the convenient position of this lake, a farmer in the neighbourhood erected a mill, which gives its name to the lake, on the shore of the Bay of Quinte, and which he supplied with water by making a deep cutting from the lake to the edge of the precipice, from whence it is conveyed in troughs to the mill. There is a somewhat similar lake in the township of Sydney, in the county of Hastings, covering some hundred acres. This lake is also of great depth, though situated on the summit of a range of high hills, from whence it gets the name of the Oak Hill Pond. The Bay of Quinte abounds in excellent fish of various kinds, affording excellent sport to those who are fond of fishing. When the ice breaks up in the spring, immense shoals of pickerel commence running up the Moira River at Belleville to spawn in the interior. At that time, a number of young men amuse themselves with spearing them, standing on the flat rocks at the end of the bridge which crosses the river. They dart their spears into the rushing waters at haphazard in the darkness, bringing up a large fish at every second or third stroke. My eldest son, a youth of fifteen, sometimes caught so many fish in this manner in two or three hours that we had to send a large wheelbarrow to fetch them home. Formerly, before so many mills were erected, the fish swarmed in incredible numbers in all our rivers and lakes. In the backwoods there is excellent deer hunting, and parties are often formed for this purpose by the young men who bring home whole wagon loads of venison. While speaking of Belleville, I may mention, as one of its chief advantages, the long period for which the sleighing continues in this part of the country, when compared with other places on the shore of Lake Ontario. 
Nearly the whole winter there is excellent sleighing on the Bay of Quinte, and on the land we have weeks of good sleighing for days in most other places. This is owing to the influence of a large sheet of frozen water interposed between us and Lake Ontario, which is never frozen. The county of Prince Edward is a peninsula connected with the mainland by a narrow isthmus of low, swampy land, about four miles wide. Through this neck of land, it has long been in contemplation to cut a canal to enable the lake steamboats to take Belleville in their route between Kingston and Toronto, thus affording a safe navigation in stormy weather. The effect of such a work on the prosperity of the counties of Hastings and Prince Edward would be very great, as European emigrants would have an opportunity of seeing a country which has hitherto escaped their notice, from the causes already mentioned. Besides the usual variety of churches, there is a grammar school, and also four large common schools, which latter are free schools being supported by assessments on the people of the town. Every Saturday, which is the great day for business from the country, the streets are crowded with farmers' wagons or sleighs, with their wives and pretty daughters who come in to make their little purchases of silk gowns and ribbons, and to sell their butter and eggs, which are the peculiar perquisites for the females in this country. The counties of Hastings and Prince Edward are celebrated for female beauty, and nowhere can you see people in the same class more becomingly attired. At the same time there is nothing rustic about them, except genuine good nature and unaffected simplicity of manners. To judge by their light elastic step and rosy smiling countenances, no people on earth seem to enjoy a greater share of health and contentment. Since the establishment of the county municipal councils, plank and macadamized roads have branched out in all directions from the various central county towns, stretching their ramifications like the veins of the human body, conveying nourishment and prosperity throughout the country, increasing the trade and the travel, connecting man with man, and promoting intelligence and civilization, while the magnetic telegraph, now traversing the whole length of the country, like the nervous system, still further stimulates the inhabitants to increased activity. The people of this county have not been behind their neighbours in these improvements. The first plank road which they constructed was from Belleville to Caniff's Mills, a distance of three miles over a road which at the time was often knee-deep in mud, with a solid foundation of flat limestone rock, which prevented the escape of the water. So infamous was this road that on some parts of it it was a matter of serious doubt whether a boat or wagon would be the better mode of conveyance. Notwithstanding the badness of this road, it was the greatest thoroughfare in the county, as it was the only approach to a number of mills situated on the river, and to Belleville from the back country. It was, however, with the utmost difficulty that the warden could induce the other members of the county council to sanction the construction of a plank road at the expense of the county. So little was then known in Canada of the effects of such works. The profits yielded by this road are unusually large, amounting, it is said, to seventy or eighty per cent. This extraordinary success encouraged the people to undertake other lines, by means of joint-stock companies formed among the farmers. All these plank roads are highly remunerative, averaging, it is stated, fourteen per cent over and above all expenses of repair. More than thirty miles of plank road is already constructed in the county. 
In a few years, plank or gravel roads will be extended through every part of the country, and they will be most available as feeders to the great line of railway, which will very soon be constructed through the entire length of the province, and which has been already commenced at Toronto and Hamilton. A single track plank road costs from 375 to 425 pounds per mile, according to the value of the land to be purchased or other local causes. The cost of a gravel road, laid 12 feet wide and 9 inches deep, and 22 feet from out to out, is from 250 to 325 pounds, and it is much more lasting and more easily repaired than a plank road. Macadamized or gravel roads will no doubt entirely supersede the others. In the present circumstances of the colony, however, plank roads will be preferred, because they are more quickly constructed, and with less immediate outlay of money in the payment of labourers' wages, as our numerous sawmills enable their farmers to get their own logs sawed, and they thus pay the greater portion of their instalments on the stock taken in the roads. In fact, by making arrangements with the proprietors of sawmills, they can generally manage to get several months' credit, so that they will receive the first dividends from the road before they will be required to pay any money. The mode of making these roads is exceedingly simple. The space required for the road is first levelled, ditched, and drained, and then pieces of scantling, five or six inches square, are laid longitudinally on each side, at the proper distance for a roadway twelve feet wide, and with the ends of each piece sawn off diagonally, so as to rest on the end of the next piece, which is similarly prepared to prevent the road from settling down unequally. The pieces of scantling thus connected are simply bedded firmly in the ground, which is levelled up to their upper edges. Pine planks three inches thick are then laid across with their ends resting on the scantling. The planks are closely wedged together like the flooring of a house, and secured here and there by strong wooden pins, driven into auger holes bored through the planks into the scantling. The common way is to lay the plank flooring at right angles with the scantling, but a much better way has been adopted in the county of Hastings. The planks are here laid diagonally, which of course requires that they should be cut several feet longer. This ensures greater durability, as the shoes of the horses cut up the planks much more when the grain of the wood corresponds in direction with their sharp edges. When a double track is required, three longitudinal courses of scantling are used, and the ends of the planks meet on the centre one. Very few, if any, iron nails are generally used. The great advantage of a plank road is the large load it enables the horses to draw. Whilst on a common road a farmer can only carry twenty-five bushels of wheat in his wagon, a plank road will enable him to carry forty or fifty bushels of the same grain with a pair of horses. The principal disadvantage of the plank roads is that they are found by experience to be injurious to horses, particularly when they are driven quickly on them. They are best adapted for a large load drawn at a slow pace. I shall not attempt to describe the country in the neighbourhood of Belleville, or the more northern parts of the county. It will suffice to observe that the country is generally much varied in its surface, and beautiful, and the soil is generally excellent. Within the last ten or twelve years, the whole country has been studded with good substantial stone or brick houses, or good white-painted frame houses, even for thirty miles back, and the farms are well fenced and cultivated, showing undeniable signs of comfort and independence. 
streams and water are abundant, and there are several thriving villages and hamlets scattered through the county. The village of Caniff's Mills, three miles from Belleville, and soon destined to form a part of it, alone containing a population of about a thousand. In describing the progress of this county, I may be understood as describing that of most other counties in the upper province, the progress of all of them being rapid, though varying according to the advantages of situation or from causes already alluded to. From what has been said, the reader will perceive that the present condition of Canada generally is exceedingly prosperous, and when the resources of the country are fully developed by the railroads now in progress of construction, and by the influx of capital and population from Europe, no rational person can doubt that it will ultimately be as prosperous and opulent as any country in the world, ancient or modern. It may be said, should we not then be hopeful and contented with our situation and prospects? And so the people are in the main, and the shrewd capitalists of England think so, or they would not be so ready to invest their money in our public works. But some deduction from this general state of contentment and confidence must be made, for those little discontents and grumblings created by the misrepresentations of certain disappointed politicians and ambitious men of all parties who expect to gain popularity by becoming grievance-mongers. Much has been done, and a great deal still remains to be done in the way of reform, here as elsewhere. But there never was any just cause or motive in that insane cry for annexation to the United States, which was raised some years ago, and by the Tories, too, of all people in the world. The annexation mania can now only be regarded as indicative of the last expiring struggle of a domineering party. It would not be correct to call it a political party, which had so long obstructed the progress of Canada by its selfish and monopolizing spirit, when it found that its reign had ceased for ever. Great sacrifices have been, and will be made, by men of loyalty and principle in support of institutions, which are justly dear to every Briton and to every freeman. But this feeling necessarily has its limits along the mass of mankind, and the loyalty of a people must be supported by reason and justice. They should have good reason to believe that their institutions are more conducive to happiness and prosperity than those of all other countries. Without this conviction, loyalty in a people who have by any means been deprived of the power of correcting the abuses of their government would be hardly rational. Canadians now have that power to its full extent. Why, then, should we not be loyal to the constitution of our country, which has stood the test of ages, purifying itself and developing its native energies, as a vigorous constitution outgrows disease in the human frame? The government of Canada is practically more republican than that of the mother country, and nearly as republican as that of the United States. Our government is also notoriously much less expensive. Our public officers are also, practically, much more responsible to the people, though indirectly because they are appointed by a colonial ministry who are elected by the people, and whose popularity depends in a great degree on the selections they make and upon their watchfulness over their conduct. The government of the United States is not a cheap government, because all officers being elective by the people, the responsibility of the selections to office is divided and weakened. Moreover, the change or prospect of the electors, being the elected, 
inclines them to put up with abuses and defalcations which would be considered intolerable under another form of government. The British government now holds the best security for the continued loyalty of the people of Canada in their increasing prosperity. To Great Britain they are bound by the strongest ties of duty and interest, and nothing but the basest ingratitude or absolute infatuation can ever tempt them to transfer their allegiance to another country. I shall conclude this chapter with a few verses written two years ago, and which were suggested by an indignant feeling at the cold manner with which the national anthem was received by some persons who used to be loud in their professions of loyalty on former public occasions. Happily, this wayward and pettish, I will not call it disloyal spirit, has passed away, and most of the annexationists are now heartily ashamed of their conduct. God save the Queen! God save the Queen! The time has been when these charmed words, or said, or sung, have through the welkin proudly rung, and, heads uncovered, every tongue has echoed back, God save the Queen! God save the Queen! It was not like the feeble cry that slaves might raise as tyrants passed, with trembling knees and hearts downcast, while dungeoned victims breathed their last in mingled groans of agony. God save the Queen! Nor were these shouts without the will which servile crowds oft send on high, when gold and jewels meet the eye, when pride looks down on poverty, and makes the poor man poorer still. God save the Queen! No, it was like the thrilling shout, the joyous sounds of price and praise that patriot hearts are wont to raise, mid cannons roar and bonfires blaze, when Britain's foes are put to rout. God save the Queen! For mid those sounds to Britain's dear, no dastard selfish thoughts intrude to mar a nation's gratitude, but one soul moves that multitude to sing in accents loud and clear, God save the Queen! Such sounds as these in days of yore, on warship's deck and battle plain, have rung o'er heaps of foemen slain, and with God's help they'll ring again, when warrior's blood shall flow no more. God save the Queen! God save the Queen, let patriots cry, and palsied be the impious hand, would guide the pen or wield the brand against our glorious fatherland. Let shouts of freemen rend the sky. God save the Queen and liberty. Reader, my task is ended. End of chapter 28, Canadian Sketches, part 2. Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty, December 2010.